us for all the, the basic necessities of life, for this country that we can worship freely in. We thank, but, but most of all, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you that it is food for us. We thank you that it is life for us. So Lord, I pray that you would bless our time together. I pray that you would remove all oppressions and all distractions and, and anything that threatens to take our mind and focus off of you and your word. So Lord, we lay those at your feet. May we be one with you as we sit at your feet and, and hear what you have for us today. We thank you for being our good God who loves us enough to want to teach us about right and wrong and about life, freedom, hope, and peace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a teenager, I was highly involved in my home church's pretty decently sized youth group. My friends and I were on the ministry teams that helped run the youth group, and we helped out at every youth event, and we had built up this reputation, at least in my mind anyways, of being leaders in that youth group uh, and, 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 and being able to be trusted with different things. Uh, you'll see why this is important in a minute. One year, the youth group had a retreat at a camp facility, and for some reason, these friends and I decided we wanted to pull a prank while we were at this youth group retreat. Uh, John and Jen would have loved having me in their youth group. <laughs> we had this whole plan in our minds that we were going to prank the girls' bathroom with shaving cream on the mirrors, plastic wrap on the toilet seats, you know, all the pranks that you would pull on, on somebody's bathroom. And we had all the supplies to do that. We had, planned, we had planned this whole thing. We got all the supplies. We were ready to, to follow through with all this. But on the night we were going to pull this prank, we all got scared of actually going into the girls' bathroom to complete this prank. So, for, so, so we decided, well, we have all the supplies already. We can't let them go to waste. So we decided to prank the boys' bathroom instead with all of our supplies, which doesn't really make much sense, does it? We waited until everyone else had gotten ready for bed and left because they were at least, we were at least sort of trustworthy being left in the bathroom by ourselves, unsupervised. Well, we, we created a work of art. That's, that's what I like to describe it as. We created a work of art. Shaving cream smeared everywhere, silly string and toilet paper hanging from the ceiling and, and across the room, plastic wrap on every toilet and every urinal. You guys would have been proud. It was beautiful to behold. We quietly left the bathroom building and slipped into the cabin where everyone else was sleeping. We thought we had gotten away with it. Nobody would have known until I was rudely awakened by one of the youth leaders telling me sternly to march to the bathroom building with, the rest, with my co-conspirators to go clean up the boys' bathroom. And it took us hours to clean that mess up. See, my friends and I took advantage of the thought, no matter how realistic or unrealistic this thought was, that we were seen as leaders in, in the youth group and seen as trustworthy. It had the freedom of being some, somewhat trusted. That was the last time we tried at least that type of prank ever again. 
In our passage this morning, Paul addresses the possibility that freedom in Christ brought. What does that mean? Paul had been spending all this time dismantling the premise that the Galatian Gentile believers in Jesus needed to follow the Mosaic law in order to keep good morality and earn their salvation. But now he sees the very real possibility that the Gentile Galatians would think, okay, I'm hearing you now, that if we don't need to follow the Mosaic law, which is the code of morality that Jesus followed, that means we don't need to follow any sort of code of morality, right? That, that, that's what our new freedom gives to us. That's what you're telling us, right? The concern was that if one removed the Mosaic law from one's life, that person could then turn around and live lawlessly, completely lawlessly. To be fair, that concern is legitimate for the whole reason, as Paul has been explaining, that the law was given in the first place was because sinful humanity needed a moral code to keep their sin in check. Now, it seems if Paul is outright saying that these believers, still human and still imperfect, don't need a moral code to keep their sin in check anymore. Paul doesn't want these newly enlightened Gentile believers to take advantage of their newfound freedom in Christ in order to exploit it and think that they can now do what they wanted. To some, freedom may have been that they could do whatever they wanted to. I'm a follower of Jesus, so I don't have to follow the Mosaic law, which means I don't have to follow any law then. I just love Jesus, and that's it. That's good enough. To some, that may be what freedom was, but Paul explains what having freedom in Christ really is and what it really means. The main problem is that throughout this whole letter of Galatians, Paul has been laying out and explaining that the death and resurrection of Jesus has ushered in a completely new age for the world. And he's trying to get his readers to wrap their minds around that truth, that concept, that the death and resurrection of Jesus has ushered in a completely new age for the world. And the people he's writing to keep on insisting on operating in the old world way of belief and doing things. And that was the main problem here. As one biblical scholar put it, Paul's job now is to show the believers in Galatia, both Jewish and Gentile in background, that humanity does not operate in legalism anymore. One L word, which... Or, or the opposite of legalism anymore, which is license to do whatever you want. But this new age has brought about a new way of life. The new way of life is unlike anything humanity or the world has seen or experienced yet. And the new way of life is called liberty. It's not legalism and it's not license. It's liberty. See, legalism says I must... I must do or I must not do things purely because I'm just supposed to do them or not do them. That's what legalism says. License says, I don't need to do or not do anything. I can do whatever I want at any given moment, whatever I feel like doing. But liberty is completely different from the two, and that's what Paul is trying to get across to his readers. 
What makes liberty radically different is that it does not remove responsibility for actions, but it allows freedom in living those responsibilities out. Liberty brings a higher purpose to your life, fulfillment, and dare I say, enjoyment. So to better explain this whole new way of looking at things since the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul first starts out by explaining what this new age does not mean. And so that's what we're going to start with first here. It's not legalism. What's intriguing about this subject is that Paul briefly mentions this topic here and then delves into the whole explanation of why later on when he writes, his, writes to the believers living in Rome. Paul simply starts out this section by saying in verse 13, do not turn your, your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Let's read that. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. The Galatian Gentiles had been convinced that subjecting themselves to the Mosaic law was the way to justification and therefore what their salvation rested on. They saw the Mosaic law as a means to salvation. That was di quite different from someone who saw the law as pointless and a burden. So in his overall mission to the situation in Galatia, for Paul first had to point out to the Gentiles that legalism was not the mark of reconciliation with God through Jesus. That's what Paul has been doing since the beginning of this letter. He's been showing the Gentile believers that, le that the legalism that came from the Mosaic law placed all the responsibility for justification squarely on the individual human's shoulders. And let me tell you, that is not what you want your justification sitting squarely on. In a legalistic viewpoint, all that Jesus salvifically accomplished on the cross was meaningless, pointless, irrelevant, and can be jettisoned off of what faith is. But then honestly, what would faith be at that point if you just jettisoned Jesus and everything he did from your faith? What would that faith be? Faith in what? Yourself? Yikes. I'm sorry, but that is not the faith that I want to have. Faith in myself. And Paul is saying, you don't need to live that way. You've been freed from that. That's why Jesus came. You have been called to freedom, brethren. First of all, faith by way of legalism doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Paul has spent the entirety of this letter explaining that. He spent the entirety of this letter showing from the Torah the major weakness of the law in the area of salvation from God's wrath towards sin. It was never meant to bring about salvation in the first place. From our study of Galatians so far, what has salvation always been inextricably tied to? See how much you've been paying attention. Faith in God's promises, right? That's what Paul has been explaining throughout this whole letter. That justification and salvation has always been extricably tied to faith in God's promises. That was established all the way back with Abraham. That's not legalism. As Paul has shown in his letter, 
Abraham's faith in God's promise was what brought him justification from his sins and therefore salvation from condemnation. That was the founding document of faith and nothing, not the, even the subsequent Mosaic law could change or modify that into a legalistic basis. The basis of faith in God's promises resulting in justification from sin did not even start with Abraham. It was what was always the basis for justification from sin. Hebrews 11 speaks of the second generation coming from Adam and Eve, namely Abel, and that he was declared righteous by God, i.e. justified by God, because of his faith. Following that, the writer of Hebrews notes that Enoch was declared righteous because of his faith. And then the writer of Hebrews makes this very important statement. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now imagine being a person basing your faith on the Mosaic law and hearing that statement. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You know what that is? That's faith in God's promises. The God who is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. Immediately after that verse, the writer of Hebrews then refers to Noah's faith. He says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. You notice that? Now, what do we already know about Noah? Even before God visited him and told him that he was going to destroy every living creature except for him and his family and the animals that would be saved with a flood, this is how the Bible refers to Noah. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. That was before God even visited him and told him that he was going to flood the ark. Now, why is that important? Where am I going with this? What does this say about, at the end of this verse, about Noah's faith? It says, Noah walked with God. That's what it says, right? This is the exact description of Enoch's faith. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So what does this mean? Noah had the same faith as his great-grandfather Enoch. Noah's faith was one based on faith in God's promises, just like Enoch, even before God even told him that he was going to flood the earth. So when God told him what he was going to do with the earth and humanity, the, uh, Noah's faith led him to also believe God at that point as well. And because of that faith in God's promises, the writer of Hebrews, as we read, says that Noah became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. The writer of Hebrews then moves on to Abraham, and we already know that Abraham was justified by his faith in God's promises. Now, what's my point? My point is that, as, as Paul has been saying, even though Paul started with, with, with Abraham, that justification from sin by way of faith in God's promises did not just start with Abraham, it's always been the way that God intended Abraham. 
to provide salvation to people since the beginning of the creation of the human race. So if you're confused about how God saved people before Jesus came to earth, if that was ever a question that was in your mind, how did God save people before Jesus came to earth, thousands of years after Adam and Eve, and wondering if God changed salvation by way of justification through faith in God's promises, that is always the way that it's been. Justification and subsequent salvation based on faith in God's promises. God never changed that. The Abrahamic covenant simply established that for future generations, and the new covenant established by Jesus' death and resurrection expanded that truth that salvation can only be obtained by faith in God's promises. You might say, well, then what was the point of Jesus if all we have to do is believe God's promises? Well, let's establish all that that entails. To believe the promises, you must have to believe the one making the promises. You must have to trust the one making the promises. That means you must trust that he is and, that, and what he says he is in his word. That means you must trust that he's holy and perfect, sovereign and in control of everything in this world, all-powerful, all-knowing, and the king who can and has established what is good and evil, and therefore he's perfectly trustworthy. That's one part of trusting God's promises. The promise that he makes, the promises that he makes include that if humanity chose to disobey him, they would suffer the curse of physical death and then the second death. Another promise is that humanity is now cursed because of that promise, and that curse renders us spiritually dead and unrighteous, and therefore incapable of bringing ourselves spiritual life and righteousness. And the one major promise that was always a part of this faith in God's promises that would bring justification was the promise that one day a deliverer would be sent to ultimately rescue humanity from that curse. The writer of Hebrews describes that all those who lived before that deliverer, named Jesus, came to earth, were justified because they clung to that one major promise that he would one day rescue humanity, of which they were a part of, from the curse of sin and death. Our justification hinges on the fulfillment of that promise and clinging to the promise that Jesus' death and resurrection justifies us and our faith in that is the only thing that will save us when we stand before God and give an account for our lives. So we too trust in God's promises and that's what the basis of our faith is. All of that was to show not only the whole story of the Bible from cover to cover as being relevant to us today, living in 2017 America, as those who have also been justified because of our faith in God's promises, namely Jesus' death and resurrection, saving us from our sin and separation from most holy God. And all of that was to show that legalism has nothing to do with it. Legalism took what God had instituted, namely the Mosaic Law, and perverted it and twisted it to mean something that it was never sp supposed to mean. What does that mean today? A lot of people, maybe one of you sitting here today, 
think that if I do enough good things to outweigh my bad things, that'll be good enough to enter heaven. I can believe whatever I want as long as I do enough good things to outweigh my bad things. It's not even needing to show that you'll never do enough good things to outweigh the bad. It's that that's completely missing the point as I, as I just went through all of that. Anyone who is hinging, in essence, their salvation on this belief that if they do enough good things to outweigh their bad things that they'll enter heaven has gotten on a train that will never reach heaven. It's going in the completely opposite direction that'll never reach there. Because that was never the way God designed it to be. It's like trying to cut grass with a snow shovel. It's just never going to happen. No matter how hard you whack at it, you're not actually going to cut that foot tall grass with a snow shovel. It's never going to happen. You've completely missed it. Trying to do enough good things to outweigh the bad things is legalism. That's what that is. And you've completely missed the point of what faith really is. Legalism was never the way it was supposed to be. God's design or liberty through faith is also not this. In verse 15, jump down to verse 15 with me. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. See, legalism leads people to judge each other. That's what legalism does. I'm trying to do enough uh, what I'm supposed to do, so that gives me the right to judge this person over here that I don't think is doing all the things they should be doing or not doing. The situation in Galatia was forcing a situation in that the Jewish Christian legalists were judging the Gentiles who were not adhering to the Jewish law and the Gentile Christians to judge each other and the Jewish Christian legalists and their adherence to the law. Legalism not only naturally leads to judging, ridicule, gossip, backbiting, and a bend to assume the worst about somebody and the decisions that they make. That's the only direction that legalism leads to. There is no room for legalism in Christian love, is there? There is no room for legalism in Christian love. Legalism breeds impatience. Legalism breeds misunderstanding. Legalism breeds jumping to conclusions about people. And legalism just breeds plain unkindness. But what does Paul say in his first letter to the Corinthian church about love? He says love is patient. Love is kind. There is no room for legalism in Christian love. Let there not be any air of legalism here in our church family, because thank God he is not legalistic towards any one of us. So why should any one of us feel like we have the right to be legalistic towards each other, towards any one of our brothers and sisters? So the whole point of faith, A, is not legalism. Secondly, the whole point of faith is not license. We need to pause, albeit briefly, on what Paul teaches on in verse 13. 
He says in verse 13, Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. He says that even though believers in Jesus have been freed from legalism, they cannot use this freedom to pursue their own selfish desires. That would be twisting faith in God to mean that one could say, I believe in God, but I'm just going to do whatever I want with the rest of my life. That's license. That's taking license with what God offers to us. The word license is where the word licentiousness comes from. You may read in the New Testament, Paul lists all these things that you shouldn't be and acting like. And one of those big words is licentious, right? You may have wondered, well, it's, it's obviously bad, but I don't know what he's actually referring to here. Well, this is what he's referring to. Taking what God has offered to us and twisting it to mean that you can now do whatever you want. Taking license with what God has offered to us. Licentiousness, licentiousness means living without God's standard of morality and living according to your own standard of morality. It's exactly what Jude refers to when he says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who have long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's what licentiousness ultimately does. It denies Jesus as king of our lives. This is the extreme other side of the pendulum swing from legalism. Legalism is that the law is the end all of end all. And licentiousness is living as if there is no law. Licentiousness is a perversion of God's design for salvation to mean that I believe I'm saved from God's wrath and going to heaven because I said a prayer once at VBS or Sunday school, but I don't care what God's standard for my life is. I'm just going to live my life the way that I want to. That's licentiousness. Just as legalism is not a way to heaven, licentiousness is also not a way to heaven. Those who are nominal Christians meaning those who think, hey, I was raised Christian, or I went to church once, so that makes me a Christian, or, well, I don't think I'm Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, and I believe in God, so by default that makes me a Christian. But they just live their lives whatever way they want to and have no desire to please God with their lives. They've completely missed the point of God's design of salvation. They've completely missed the whole point. They've gotten, again, they've gotten on a train that is not heading towards heaven. Those who think because they prayed a prayer one time, but it doesn't affect their lives anymore, have also completely missed the whole point of God's design of salvation. They've likewise gotten on a train that is not heading towards heaven. I hope... That if you, if you thought that, you're feeling uncomfortable right now. I want to shake worldviews up. People have gotten too comfortable with licentious ways of looking at faith. 
But the only direction that worldview is headed is towards destruction and eternal banishment from God. You might say, does he have anything good to say now? So we've talked about what the whole point of faith is not. It's not legalism, and it's not on the other side, which is taking license. So what is the whole point of faith in God? It's liberty. That's what the whole point in faith in God is. So what does this new age of faith, offered and given to us by way of Jesus' death and resurrection, mean to us? What, is, what has it given to us, which Paul so passionately is getting across to his readers, and what God is passionately getting across to us today? In the second part of verse 13 and into verse 14, this is what we read. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Faith in Jesus gives us liberty. Not freedom from a righteous lifestyle, but freedom from legalism. Both licentiousness and legalism are entirely self-focused. Do you catch that? Both legalism and licentiousness, no matter what color you paint it, are both self-focused. And that's why they are not what God has given to us. Legalism is self-focused because you're trying to make sure you're doing everything right and you're not doing anything wrong. Licentiousness is self-focused because you're not recognizing Jesus as your king. You're recognizing yourself as king. But liberty is completely outward focused. That's what makes liberty radically different from legalism and licentiousness. It's completely outward focused. It's focused on loving and serving others. That's what makes liberty that comes from faith in Jesus so radically different from every other worldview of faith or perversion of faith. Because the liberty that comes through faith in Jesus is completely outward focused, loving and serving others. This goes hand in hand with what we've been focusing on the past few weeks. That true faith is faith working through love. That true faith is faith working through love. Faith in Jesus does not free us from the morality of what was in the law. It fulfills the morality of what was in the law. Let me explain. The liberty that comes from faith is what is at the heart of the law in the first place. The liberty that comes from faith is what is at the heart of the law in the first place. And that is this. Loving God and loving others. That's what's at the heart of the law. Faith in Jesus frees us from having, from, from having to focus on every little commandment in the law, right, getting all that right, and frees us up to live what was always meant to be at the heart of the law. Jesus nailed what was at the heart of the law when he was tested as to what commandment was the most important. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor on your, as yourself. And then he says, 
on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The entire Old Testament is what hinges on these two commandments. That is what is at the heart of the Bible. Loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. In other words, when we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, we love his standards, and his standards include his morality. That's why we don't give up his, his morality. So loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind means living out his morality with all our heart, soul, and mind. Our liberty still means we have a responsibility to the standards God has already laid out in Scripture. But our liberty means we live out those standards. Not because we're trying to earn our salvation and trying to get every single little thing right, but because we love the God who saved us. We live out those standards out of gratitude for his justification of us through Jesus' death and resurrection. The second part of what is at the heart of the law is exactly what Paul reiterates here in verse 14. He quotes it directly. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Liberty says, if I'm focused on other people, if I'm focused on other people, I won't even be thinking of hurting them by disobeying the standards that God commanded, such as not lying, not murdering, not coveting what they have, and not committing adultery against them. And those are just a few. If I'm focusing on loving others, I'm not even thinking about trying to hurt them. Now, there's a lot of confusion as to what love means today. Love has become selfish too. But love was never meant to be selfish. In fact, there is no place for selfishness in pure love. So what does loving others mean? Paul defines it at the end of verse 13. Through love, what? Serve one another. That's what true love is. Serving another. See, the faith that God gives to us through Jesus is directly connected to showing love by serving each other. That's what the definition of biblical liberty through faith in Jesus is. Being freed from focusing on ourselves and trying to earn our own salvation by having it given to us by God in order to, free, to be freed to not focus on ourselves again, but to serve other people in love. Wow, that really is a radically different worldview signified by a new age by way of Jesus' death and resurrection, isn't it? But again, we must be careful not to strip what is entailed by Christian liberty, i.e. serving one another, from the originating faith in Jesus. I've heard lots of people say, I'm not going to have faith in any one belief or religion. I'm just going to love people. I've heard lots of people say that. It sounds nice on the surface, but it strips that Christian liberty 
from the faith in Jesus, which is the basis for that which defines Christian liberty in the first place. Faith in Jesus is the origin of loving people and serving them. So you're completely stripping faith in Jesus from that when you do that. That kind of thinking turns biblical liberty into both legalism and licentiousness at that point. It turns loving people into a basis for salvation, which is a form of legalism by trying to earn your own salvation. And it turns loving people into licentiousness by stripping God's standard for everything else from that definition of Christian liberty. You have to have it all. You can't just take the bits and pieces that sound nice. You have to take all of it. What does that mean for us as believers in Jesus, saved from God's wrath and given a place in heaven only because of God giving us righteousness in his eyes, only through Jesus' satisfaction of his requirement of the penalty of death and subsequent defeat of that curse of death by coming back to life again? What does that mean to us? It means that every second of every minute of the entirety of our lives is to be outward focused. That's what that means. It means the rest of our lives is to be outward focused. It's to be focused on loving God, and it's to be focused on living his standards of, of living that out, in, uh, out of love, and it's to be focused on loving others by serving them. That's completely outward focused. Millions of people are searching for the meaning of life. That was it right there. Through faith in Jesus, we love God and love others by serving them. That's the meaning of life. It's not glamorous, but that's what it is. It's really very simple. As complex as this world has become and continues to become, the meaning of life has always been simple. And guess what? It's always been the same. It's always been simple, and it's always been the same. So are you living in the liberty that has been given to us through your faith in Jesus? Are you living it out to its greatest potential? Being completely outward focused. Imagine, imagine with me right now. Humor me, all right? Imagine what would happen if all of us threw aside all selfishness, all self-centeredness, and all focusing on ourselves, and fully unlocked what liberty in Christ really is and really means. Imagine how many lives can be touched and changed by throwing inward focus aside and unlocking being completely outward focused. Imagine how many lives can be touched and changed. Imagine what a difference God can make in other people's lives, including our own, if we lived out that liberty in Jesus to its greatest potential. Here's a crazy thought. Let's not imagine it. Let's not imagine it. Let's do it. And let's see all the powerful things that God will do in us, that God will do in our families, that God will do in our church, and what God will do in our community because of it.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you for what our faith that you have given to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus really means. It's not legalism. It's not licentiousness. It's liberty. You have freed us to live completely outwardly, to love you with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love others in the same way. So Lord, I pray that we would fully embrace and unlock the meaning of life which is what this is. I pray that we would go out from this place changed. We would go out from this place with a new mentality, a new worldview, a new outlook on life, to be completely unself-focused and completely outward-focused, fully embracing what our faith in Jesus really is. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.